Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. What, what really solidified our approach there was just seeing the various small companies out there that were selling a good product, but not necessarily to our market. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, you'll learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to protect your business from suppliers that might not deliver, what is sublimation printing, and how you can use it if you're selling merchandise, and what factors to weigh when determining if a niche is worth getting into. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Yulinovsky from IEDM. IEDM is the premier online electronic dance music lifestyle superstore and was started in 2012 and based out of Fort Lee, New Jersey. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Felix. I appreciate the intro. Awesome. So tell us a bit more about what are some of the, the most popular products that, that you sell in this uh, superstore? Uh, well, for the season right now, uh, a lot of our hoodies are popular and some of our accessories too, like goggles and a lot of... Um, a lot of accessories and trinkets you take to a music festival and also a lot of casual wear, such as hoodies and uh, sweatshirts for the season right now. Got it. And you mentioned to me a little bit off air about the the origin of the business, that it was a little bit different than it was before, or I guess, than it is today. And you've also branched off from there. Can, can you uh, take us back to the beginning and tell us about how you got into maybe e-commerce in general? Sure. Um, I mean, I would take it even back a step further, you know. For me, it was always my goal to own my own business. So even going to school, you know, that's something I already was pretty confident that I wanted to do. Um, so coming out of uh, graduating college, basically coming out of there, I was looking for a potential job, you know, for maybe a small business out there or, or something that would still allow me to grow my own business and, and grow at my own rate. Um, and the opportunity that came about was working in the mortgage industry. Um, so I took that just being that it was a sales job and it allowed me you know, to feel as if I did own something of my own, you know, however that may be. So I started there in uh, 2010. And um, as I was working in the corporate world, you know, I was realizing that, you know, my yearn to own my own business was never really going to, you know, leave my mind. So I started just considering the various options out there and looking at trends. Um, and late 2012, um, I got together with a friend of mine, and uh, who also had a job, you know, we decided in our spare time just to, you know, examine things and potentially just try some things out as far as our own business. So we started really looking at potential niches out there, you know, within different um, industries that we were interested in. And that's where we started EDM Life from. So EDM Life was the company that pre, uh, pre-existed before IEDM. Um, late 2012, we started it. So Basically, we were we were avid fans of electronic dance music in that industry. Um, I have some uh, friends over in Europe where the industry was much bigger than it was in the United States at that time, and I had a very you know strong inclination that it was going to come here and be much bigger than anything you know we could expect. Um, so we, where we started off, we basically went to a music festival and created some custom glasses we had made you know at a two week turnaround, um, and basically we just went around you know to the long lines and tried to see if there was a market for it you know if this is something that was interested interesting to people, and it did pretty well you know we snuck them into the music festival you know, we went around and the whole goal was to just understand you know was there a demand for something like this how were people reacting to it, um, and the reaction was really positive. So from there, we basically developed a Google website, you know, just a cheap, cheap kind of templated website. 
Um, and going off of really social media traffic and organic traffic, we didn't do any paid search or anything like that at that time. And uh, as we b- basically began to grow our product line, um, we approached our businesses about potentially drop shipping, seeing as how we didn't have a location, you know, we didn't have the time or, or the money up front. Um, basically, we wanted to offer them an opportunity to make a little extra money and you know, create an opportunity for ourselves. And from there, we started expanding the store from just glasses and you know, it just grew from there. Um, a few months later, you know, basically, I decided to delve much deeper into it and, and really dedicate my time and try to create this future for myself. Um, and me and a good friend of mine basically decided to just leave the company be and I would take over since he just was focused on growing his career in the corporate world. Uh, yeah. And that took us to 2013 and then 2014, once that plan really developed, um, April 7th of 2014, I quit my mortgage job the same day that IEDM launched, you know, and I just took that jump. Awesome. So I want to dive into that a little bit more, taking, going back to the original hypothesis that there was a growing niche that, that you were getting into. So other than looking at or seeing that the European market had a much, much bigger uh, industry, much, much bigger niche, and you recognizing that that's probably going to come to the U.S. as well, what other factors did you look at or do you look at today when you are evaluating whether to get into a specific industry? You know, for me, it, the main factor is the niche. Um, and that's how really Epic Hoodie as well. You know, I, I'm a believer in, you know, in just my my personal experience and, you know, some some other self-made, you know, individuals that I've come across. Um, if you try to force a business idea, you know, in a position where there might not be the opportunity, you know, even if it's a passion of yours, you, you may fall flat. It just might not be a good opportunity for you. Um, the way I viewed it, you know, the electronic dance community as a whole was much bigger in Europe and the music was making its way here. Um, as far as the EDM apparel uh, market over there and, and festival market, it was non-existent as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I just saw the opportunity and, and saw, of course, how commercialized things get in the United States. Um, the main thing for me, honestly, is I don't think I would ever, you know, risk risk anything on a business that wasn't already, you know, part of a niche. If, if it's not a niche, you know, if we're going out there and just going to prove that we're better than, you know, a bunch of other companies doing something similar – you know, that's a that's a tough, you know, hill to climb in certain cases, especially if you don't have strong funding behind you. So my approach was, you know, niche first, find that niche first. And I was actually looking into a few different industries, not only electronic dance music, you know, back when I was brainstorming this. So, you know, I was just very confident in, in the opportunity there. Um, there were some other companies in, in the industry. No one had a strong marketing budget, you know, and no one really, it, it, it all seemed like very young companies. And that's really where the main idea came from, um, was to create a platform for other small businesses that sold a product for the EDM community, for the festival, music festival market, and give them give them a position, give them a platform to sell their product where maybe their own social reach wasn't strong. You know, we felt that we were good at some things, including social media marketing, you know, growing our social media platform, creating a website. So basically we took these brands that sold really cool products, oftentimes handmade, you know, um, artist made. But they never really reached a wider market, and we took it as our, you know, our opportunity, our position to connect those those individuals, those companies with potential customers. So you're looking for uh, when you're looking at niches, you you looked for identified popular, passionate niches with competition that you felt like you could outmarket. Yeah, I, I would say so. We we just tried to figure out a market that wasn't overly saturated and that was relatively new. You know, and where we could still build a pretty strong position. 
Um, and of course, I mean, the other factor is, is, yeah, you need to have a passion for what you're looking for. So I felt the niche was there. And so was the fact that this was something I was very passionate about, you know, something that I, I knew my heart would be in for a long time. Um, but yeah, the main, as far as the niche goes, you know, there were no established companies. There was no real corporate powerhouse within the industry, um, at that time. So basically our goal was to, you know, get our foot in the door and slowly grow from there, you know, and, and capture that market. Got it. Yeah. You know, you hear a lot of times where people are afraid of competition, right? Where they, they recognize competition. So they think that that means that they don't want, they want to find a niche that doesn't have any sellers in that space. So when you saw that there was a big niche in Europe already, but just no semblance of an apparel industry out there, that, that aspect didn't turn you off to the idea that maybe that, that there's no demand for the apparel industry with the, the EDM niche. Like what, what made you, uh, look at that situation and then think differently than maybe what's conventional? Well, I was seeing the trend already starting, um, you know, and, and these festivals, they're so massive and they, they were coming from Europe and they were coming here on such a massive scale. You know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people, you know, at multi-day events all over the country potentially, and they were already occurring. And um, mainly what I was looking at, you know, was the growth of some of these music festivals and they were literally doubling in size year by year as they made their way into the United States, you know, from 2010 to 11 to 12, they were just growing at a very, very fast rate. Um, and at the same time, I did see the merchandise that was being sold at those events and saw some of the up and coming companies that were popping up on social media, you know, back when the social media, you know, was much more limited than it is now. There were much less accounts. So word got around relatively quick you know, especially hashtag research and things like that, you would see what was going on there. Um, but I definitely noticed the trend, you know, I noticed the trend and I just, my personal view on, on how, you know, the, the, um, clothing market here works and, and just how the, the apparel industry, you know, these massive amounts of people, you know, if you create a product that caters to their interest and caters to those events, you know, that's a real possibility. And I already saw other companies starting to, but we just felt that, you know what, we can do this, we can do this better. You know, we were very confident in what we were doing. Um, and we felt we could facilitate faster growth than they could rather than going and creating our own product um, by creating a platform, you know, and getting good at other aspects of, of the business as far as marketing, social media, you know, and then collecting these smaller companies that themselves, you know, are looking for, you know, the right the right foot in the door and the right opportunity and, and helping their product get get sold and reach a wider audience. So basically we created situations where, you know, it was, it was a positive situation for both sides, you know, and that's how we were able to pull some business partners in, you know, and create a situation where both companies were growing. Um, so really our goal was not only to, you know, go, go up against competitors, but it was to work with a lot of the potential competitors in the industry and, you know, kind of have our, have our, you know, hand in the cookie jar in various areas and grow with them. Got it. So you did see that there was uh, a, a groundswell of, or at least uh, the beginning stages of uh, growth in the industry in terms of new businesses popping up, new brands popping up, but it, there was no organization around it and they maybe weren't strong in selling, selling or marketing online. And you saw that as an opportunity to come in, bring some organization around this industry, create this platform, and then help the different brands that weren't, uh, that, that maybe didn't have the skill sets or the resources that you guys had access to, to help them sell to that to that same audience. And in return, you're now getting a, a cut of the profits. So talk to us a little bit more about this, this 
platform then, this platform approach? Because it's certainly different than maybe what a lot of other entrepreneurs have taken where they come out and they create their own products or maybe they'll work with uh, you know, a select few vendors to sell a product. But you're, you're positioning this as a platform first. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the the goal the goal of mine was really to create a stable situation. You know, when you're when you're creating a store and you're you're creating your own product and, and designs, um, oftentimes there's a lot of upfront cost. We wanted to really go into a situation where we wouldn't require an outside investor and minimum you know minimum investment upfront as well. Um, and that's really what pushed us towards that approach. But really, what what kind of um, what what really solidified our approach there was just seeing the various small companies out there. That were selling a good product, but not necessarily to our market. You know, we basically slowly took that product and, and brought it over to our electronic dance music festival market, and that's um, that, that's how we really started building building up what we were doing. Um, honestly, my personal opinion is, you know, if you're creating a fashion brand, um, there's there's a lot of upfront costs and there's a lot of risk factor. You know, you you can create you know five, ten, twenty designs, but to build it up, it would just be built up at a rather slow pace. Our goal was to get in there and build enough of a market presence, you know, to where if there was corporate funding on, say, one of our competitors, that we wouldn't get blown out of the water, you know. So the goal was really to go in and and, and just grab a piece of that market before it was too late. Mm. Now, now, were these uh, brands or products that you were working with were they already selling to to the to your demographic to your customers, or were you taking them from other industries that, that they were selling and introducing their products to a brand new audience? Uh, you know, a little bit of both. Um, in certain cases, we definitely were taking a product that wasn't selling to our audience and introducing it, you know, rather successfully to it. Um, an example of that is really a lot of the clothing you see on our website now are sublimation based. Uh, basically, that's not a logo printing process. It's not like screen printing. It's um, it's a one-off printing style. So you're printing one product per print, um, and you can really take any graphic and apply it there. Um, the great thing about it is it's all really computer-based, so you don't need a high upfront cost. You don't need a minimum number of units or a mold or anything like that. Um, so we we saw some companies out there that really were at the forefront of the, of this new you know this new technology that wasn't existent before because these R files are just absolutely massive. Um, and we, we were the first to incorporate them, you know, in, into raveware, into, uh, you know, music festival clothing. Um, and that's one thing that we, we jumped on it back in 2013. Um, yeah, but I mean, o- overall, we basically took a little bit of both. It was, it was some personal introductions that occurred, you know, where maybe we did some music festival vending early on and we met some companies out there that had a, a good product. So we took a mix of established companies that were already on the festival circuit, you know, and had products, especially accessories. And then we also incorporated this made-to-order type clothing that was sublimation-based, you know, and seeing how a lot of that clothing did cross over fairly well to the EDM market. Mm-hmm. Now, which which do you prefer? Which kind of product do you prefer? Helping to to sell a product that to a market that already knows about it, or introducing a new product to 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 the market? Um, it's it's hard to say. You know, I would say I would be much more. Um, passionate and proud about introducing a completely new market, you know, a new product to a market because that's something that's our own. That's something that's very unique. Um, but again, it's, you always have to weigh the risk factor, you know, and, and, and be confident in what you're doing. Uh, because if the risk is too strong, you know, you can fall flat and, and it's a hard recovery from there. So we always try to, you know, create a situation where we, we were taking some risk, but we were also alleviating that risk by, you know, selling products that we know would knew would sell to the market. Maybe the upside wasn't as great. Maybe the um, you know the profit per per unit wasn't as great. 
but we, we knew that we would build a stable environment for ourselves. But I would say overall, you know, definitely, definitely introducing new products and new styles to the market would be something we're proud of, you know, and, and now I would say sublimation itself is all over our industry. Really, every one of our competitors is selling a lot of them with the same manufacturer. Um, but it's that kind of, you know, that kind of industry where everybody catches on quick now. Um, but I would say we were one of the forefront companies with, mm-hmm. with that um, specific printing style. And when we when we look at this from the perspective of what's the easiest path to revenue or profit, is it the approach of bringing a new product to to a brand new product to to your market, or finding one that's already selling, I guess, or already people are already familiar with, and then backing that that product or that brand? Hey, you know, it's it's tough to say if your individual product that you're selling that's your own um, has a high upfront cost, you know, and something that requires a, a strong investment. You know, if, if you're extremely confident about that product in the niche out there, then I would definitely say go for it. Um, but if you're in a situation where you don't have a massive, you know, upfront investment, you don't have investors and, and you're trying to take the minimal risk and maybe create a situation where down the line you can release your own product, you know, and make that work, then I would say go in the direction of selling other products first, you know, go the safest route possible to at least establish yourself, to establish a cash flow. Because otherwise, you're taking something and you're putting, you know, you're 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 taking a fairly big risk. Um, but that's really the way I view it. Because let's say we started a fashion brand, you know, I can't see us creating a hundred designs that could probably sell well, you know, upfront. Usually, you start off with a handful of designs. You you know, you get the artist, um, and then it's a it's an uphill battle. You know, what if that artwork doesn't sell? You know, then what are you going to do? You have to go back and you know, pretty much toss that money and start over. So that's really why my approach is, is that, you know, I try to survey the environment, you know, and see what is already selling, or at least that was the approach in the beginning, and, and pick the safest option for us with the idea that down the line we can go more and more into our own direction with minimal risk. But if you're someone who really is, if a lot is riding on your investment, you know, and you're trying to, this is, it's now or never, and you need to build that business and, and you have a certain limited number of funds to make it happen, I would say, you know, you have to go. You, you have to take the risk, but you also have to take the safe route. Got it. So maybe when you're bringing a brand new product, higher risk, but higher reward. But if, you, if you're working with a product that the audience is already familiar with, lower risk, but possibly also lower rewards as well. Now, at this point, how many brands or companies are you are you working with? We work with about eight brands, and now we're going more into the direction of working with um, private artists and working directly with artists. Um, that's especially the direction that we're taking on Epic Hoodie of the other business. Um, but a lot of the companies that we're working with now, we've pretty much been working with for a few years now. Um, you know, as the, And some of them, again, they were even outside of our industry when we started working with them. And now those companies themselves have a little you know, electronic dance music section on their website. Yeah, I would say, yeah, about 10 companies right mm-hmm. now. And how did you, how did you pick them? How do you identify which, which brands or which companies are going to be good partners? Uh, the way we really did our first wave, you know, we, we honestly got most of the companies signed in within a matter of days. You know, the goal was to come to come to them with an approach that was a win-win for both sides where, you know, we offered them extra profit. We offered them the ability to grow. Um, and we, of course, created a situation for ourselves where we could take a small profit. Um, you know, profit is always a little more difficult when you're, when you're trying to sell a product that's made in the USA, you know, and the, mm-hmm. and the, the costs are high. Um, but we were able to make it work. So basically the approach, a lot of it was social media research. You know, a lot of it was Googling and especially social media research and just making a long list and then cutting it down, cutting it down and finding those companies that we were confident in. 
because the thing is too, you know, you're taking small companies, you know, a lot of these companies start off with a few thousand followers and, and, and a, you know, semi janky website, you know, because everyone was a new business. Everyone was trying things out. Um, so for us, it was about taking, you know, finding a company that made a cool product, but again, you know, also not taking a massive risk, you know, because you can sign somebody on, you can, you know, agree to something. And then if they can't deliver on the sales and the fulfillment, then you're in a very bad spot. And, you know, unfortunately we did learn that the hard way in the beginning, you know, those were some of the growing pains experienced. Um, but you have to quickly adapt, you know, to what you're seeing. And, and again, it's when you have a set invest, when you have a set number limit of funds and, and you know that this is the amount of funds that you have to get your business off the ground, you know, you have to make the right decisions. Um, you know, putting all, even if you're fully believe in something, you know, that's sometimes not enough. You need to really make sure you alleviate some of the risk. Because if that doesn't work out, then you're in a situation where you might not be able to get off the ground. And with your experience today, looking back, what, what are some red flags that, that you would see today uh, when it comes to partners that, that ended up not being able to deliver on their end of the deal? Uh, you know, you want to you do a lot of research as far as their website goes and their business and make sure they've been in business for a few years. And, and, and say they haven't, you know, create a situation, whether it's contractually or how you're purchasing inventory where, you know, you don't put yourself in a situation where potentially orders can't get fulfilled. Um, you know, I would say for us, you know, it's more so as we grow looking at, you know, getting distribution rates for our work rather than relying on third parties as well. You know, you really... The goal is to control as much of the process as you can on your own and not be dependent on other parties. I mean, that that's important. But, it, you know, we were in a state of almost desperation in the beginning. You know, we had to find these partners and we had to bring these new companies in. You know, pretty much every company we were working with was like one or two years old at the most, including the competitors that we had out there. Um, so it was a little bit like the Wild West. You know, we'd find a, a page that maybe had a few thousand likes and, you know, had a pretty decent website and it looked like the product was really cool. And we started off, but there were there were tons of growing pains, and a lot of it wasn't really the um, default of the companies we were working with. You know, we were going headfirst into the sublimation industry. You know, as far as that new style of print, that colorful you know style that we wanted felt would really translate to the EDM market. Um, and these companies were just starting off with manufacturers who themselves were just starting off. You know, it's we we pretty much worked with some of the very original manufacturers out in the United States. For this type of printing style, you know, and in certain cases when there were when there were sales spikes, you know, the companies just could not handle it because it was the made to order process. And, you know, that created some uh, situations where there would be delays. And it's just it, it was a situation where you're risking some of your company's reputation. So you just have to make sure that you, you know, you leverage that by, you know, delivering the expectations to the customers and playing it as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And what can go into a contract to help protect you from suppliers that, that might not deliver you know i would say various termination causes um as well as potential penalties you know for for late orders and things of that sort um but i mean i I would say the contract is not always you know something that can really protect you because if you're dealing with a really small company let's say as a partner you know uh, the contract's not going to give you too much protection at all you know you're talking if if you start off and say you place your first uh i don't know 50 200 orders and they're not fulfilled you know, it'll be a tough task to take that company to small claims or, you know, try to enforce a contract because you're going to create more work for yourself. Um, I would just say research the companies you're working with. You know, don't go ahead first into working with any new partners and, and you know, putting, again, you know, all your cookies in the basket. And you got you have to be smart and, and, and take minimal risk at the beginning with, with new partners. 
Yeah, I think there's a process that a lot of store owners go through to to find the right suppliers, right partners, and a lot of times the learning is done the hard way where things don't work out and then they learn from their mistakes in that way. Uh, when you are researching a business these days, are you just going to Google, typing in their name? And like, how do you get more as much detail as possible on the business to help you make a confident decision on whether to go into business with them or not? You know, Google... Uh, Looking at their social media, looking at their on-site, just trying to identify, you know, how well put together their website is, trying to get an idea of their order volume, you know, even maybe placing an order or two to try to see where those order numbers are, you know, getting their product, definitely getting a sample of the product, um, understanding their production process, understanding if they're, you know, importing something from outside the U.S., which is always a very risky you know, situation, and especially for us where we're just, that's not part of our branding anymore, you know, we're all made in the U.S.A., um, but you have to really cover every base, um, you know, but again, it's in, in a situation, if you're trying to work with a small partner in the beginning, especially in a dropship type situation where the other partner is not well established, you know, you have to start off very small because if every, even if everything looks legitimate, you know, that company can be just more interested or concerned with, with what's going on in their website, you know, so they may make a commitment, especially oftentimes companies make commitments to dropship and they can't honor it on their end. Um, and I completely understand that, you know, when we were a small company, we also had a similar situation where we just did not have enough resources to facilitate the dropship department that we started. So we had, we started and quickly closed it up because it just was very difficult to work with. Um, so it just, the main thing I would say is, you know, scale slowly, you know, mm-hmm. and especially if you're working with companies that don't have that kind of, um, online reputation where you could trace back the very origins of the company and, you know, find a long history and see they have hundreds and thousands of orders. You know, if it's a small business, you never know what you could potentially get yourself into. And you have to be able to pull yourself out of that situation if 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 there's a calling for that. Got it. You mentioned earlier that the companies that you work with, that you started working with way back in when you first got started, are now much larger and also have have uh, well, the ones that weren't in the EDM industry now have EDM sections on their website. Is this concerning at all when as you're growing that that the, the partners that you're working with are also such a growing in uh, I guess maybe their their supplier power where they are now potentially selling directly to your customers as well? It is, but it, but not not significantly. You know, the companies that have those sections in now, they still cater to pretty much a different market than ours. They just just see the opportunity in the market that we're in. You know, they want a piece of that. But yeah, I completely understand the question. You know, you you want to facilitate you know other businesses and help other people grow, but you never want to also you know facilitate your competitors taking a percentage mm-hmm. of the market. Yeah. So we're very careful, you know, on who we work with. And again, you know, I think that that just ideas in general and being able to constantly evolve is the main key here because you won't stop the growth of the other businesses. Um, but for us, you know, one thing again that we're looking to do is really grow in the direction of artists and working directly with artists rather than brands. Um, because that just gives us a unique product. You know, it's just, we don't want to be in a situation too, where, you know, we sell a product that, you know, two, three of our competitors are also selling. We want to keep it unique. We want to keep evolving. Got it. Yeah. I was going to mention that next about your approach towards creating your own products by working with these artists. What has that process been like now that you're shifting over towards uh, more more investment in this area of working directly with artists to create uh, essentially uh, unique products now? You know, it, it's definitely a bit of a tough transition um, because a lot goes into prepping the artwork and, and getting in print ready. 
but it, but it's a transition we're happy to make um, because we, we understand, you know, the unique product that we'll be putting out there. You know, a lot of the artists we're bringing in have not even had their artwork featured on clothing yet, you know, and we think that it will, you know, it'll look amazing once it's ready. Um, you'll especially see a lot of that on Epic Hoodie, you know, in the upcoming month or so. Just a lot of new artist releases on there um, that cater to more of a unique market, not just the EDM industry, um, which IEDM does. But, you know, the process is definitely a transition because there is labor involved in getting getting our work, you know, taking a piece of art and getting it ready to where it come, come out on a piece of clothing and still have the necessary quality and resolution, you know, and be something that people are willing to buy. So there are some growing pains, but, you know, like anything else, you just have to be, you know, willing and able to quickly adapt and, and adjust whatever you're doing based on what's what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And how did you uh, find the, these artists? Online research, you know, a lot of online research, a lot of social media research. Um, and, you know, mainly we just just finding artwork that we think would cater well to our industry, but not necessarily going within the industry for that. So we're going a little bit back to our roots to where we're bringing in some outside, you know, outside ideas and people, you know, where we think it will translate well to what we're doing. And, you know, at the same time, the, the electronic dance music industry itself is just it's. You know, the reason we got into it in the beginning was because we were confident that it's it's an industry that's here to stay. Just as you know, it's synonymous with technology. You know, it's electronic. That's just the way music is trending. Um, but the market itself is is constantly changing and evolving. So we have to keep changing what we're doing. You know, and it's become such a big industry that there's so many different niches within there, and so many different genres and styles and you know interests that we can bring in outside artists and bringing outside ideas and still create business for us. Mm. Now, when you are uh, drop shipping or working with these partners or when you're working directly with an artist to create your own products, what are some ways that you're able to, to test out the market to see if they would be interested in that particular product or that particular design? Uh, honestly, just um, starting on a small scale, you know, and, and seeing how things go. Um, you know, we've created some avenues where we could produce our work, you know, rather quickly and we can, you know, put it on clothing rather quickly and we could pull it if we have to. So it's really just trying out new trends, you know, and, and doing our own research online, seeing seeing what seems to be trending. And then, you know, coming out with our own few, first we, you know, put out a few designs and see how they sell, see if they trend. Um, social media is always a positive indicator as well. You know, we're able to see how well people respond to it on social media, on our social platforms. And then if it's something we're looking to do, you know, we, we, we go from there. Um, nowadays, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to push, push that envelope and, and, and change a lot of our artwork quicker. Um, just because, again, it's, it's become a situation where there's a lot of other companies trying to do, you know, similar, similar things to what we're doing and, and come out with similar artwork. So we have to keep evolving and changing things. So we're constantly trying out new things. And that will especially be evident again this, um, this coming fall as we release a lot of these new artists and you know, really come out of a, a new look as far as a lot of the products that we're selling. Got it. Now, you are obviously have lots of different products on your site, lots of different categories. Do you also remove products or categories from your site over time? Yeah, yes, we do. Um, you know, and, and, and we, we, we test things out as well. You know, in certain cases, it's, it's better to just remove products and, and, and keep the ones that are really so well. Um, in other cases, you want to give customers a certain selection, especially if your collections aren't as abundant as maybe some of the other collections in the store. Uh, so I would say it's a little bit mix of both. But you know, like anyone else who's you know been doing this for a matter of years, you know, it's you have to understand it's not always the same approach. You always have to keep testing your approach. You know, the audience changes, the approach changes. 
Um, and also Shopify comes out of a lot of tools that, you know, you can incorporate as well. You know, back in the day, basically, you didn't really have any tools to organize your collections in a way that, you know, products that sell the best would be up in the front, you know, based on a certain period of time. So let's say you had a product that was on your store for years, you know, of course, it would accumulate a lot of sales. And if you sorted by bestseller, you know, it would always be up there, you know, and people wouldn't see your really new arrivals. But now there's apps out there that allow you to, you know, display, you know, the trending items rather than just the overall bestsellers. So this way, if something's not selling, it'll get pushed to the back of the collection and not really interfere. But back in the day where you had to do everything more or less manually, you know, that's when we'd be more inclined to delete products off the website. Got it. Yeah. And because you do have a lot of different products and, and uh, multiple categories, other than allowing Shopify or, or apps to, to auto sort your products based on popularity, how do you think about organizing the categories and products when you sit down to design or redesign the, the online store? A large portion of the decision making is based on sales within a certain period uh, of time. But we've also incorporated some apps. Uh, bestseller app is one that comes to mind. And then basically, you, you can set a period of time over which it'll average out the sales and, and figure out what's selling the best. And that's what it'll put out there. Um, you can also basically set up a formula for you know new arrivals and how they're incorporated into, into, that, um, into the overall sort order. So let's say you set the order to bestsellers over four weeks. And then you could say that you know, 20 30% of the placement will be for new arrivals. So even if they aren't up there as far as bestsellers, um, and that will help do do that work for you. Um, in other cases, it's manual, you know, manual alignment and doing things manually. Sometimes the app isn't the best approach because you look mm-hmm. at, you know, you check your website and you'll see that there are certain products that have a similar color or style and they're not grouped together, you know, which is not the greatest thing. So it's a it's a bit of both, you know, it's fueling out the collection, it's fueling out the sales, and, and identifying what's the best approach there. Um, because when you have as many collections as we have as well, you know, and as many products, if you, t- if you take it all upon yourself or, you know, your employees to manually, you know, move things around, you know, it'll be a difficult task and a very time consuming task. And, you know, especially if you're weighing that against the sales, you know, it's, it's a very time consuming task. How often do you change up the, the organization of the site? Uh, it's live due to, due to the app. So it, it changes it. on a daily basis. Um, but you know, every few weeks we we look at the overall orders, and especially if we're releasing a new collection or there's a seasonal collection, that's when we're really looking at it. You know, and if there's an important seasonal collection, we may look at just completely doing it manually. Usually, it depends on the volume of products, you know, and if that's manageable for us. And have there been any tests that that you've uh, run in the user experience realm that have yielded an increase in the the conversions? Uh, not necessarily conversions, but add to, add to cart, uh, conversion rate, you know, just the add to cart rate itself. We've definitely, you know, weighed our options as far as manual, manual sort, you know, putting new arrivals in the first page using bestseller, the bestseller app. So we, we've, we've compared results and seen what would work best. Um, and for us, it's also a bit of a balance because we have a reviews app. So we, we have Yahoo reviews in the site. Um, so it's a bit of a, you know, double-edged sword where you, you want to feature your older products that have accumulated a lot of mm-hmm. reviews to really make, you know, connect with the customer and give that trust factor. But at the same time, you also need to incorporate your new arrivals in there, you know, even if they might have one or two reviews or no reviews at all. So it's a delicate balance, you know, and sometimes the things that help, such as, you know, having reviews on your site may also hurt you in a different situation. Let's say someone lands on a page and, you know, even though your website has, you know, three, 4,000 reviews, 
on that page there's one product with a review. You know, or let's say there's one product and there are ten reviews and other products have zero reviews. You know, that that'll can work against you potentially. Got it. You gonna you have to think about how people experience your site within your site too, not just how they see your site as a whole, because lots of times they don't see your site as a whole. They just see a portion of it when they're landing on just like a product page. Uh, now you mentioned earlier about the uh, sublimation process that that you uh, you guys have uh, took on early on, and it's you know relatively uh, new technology in the apparel space. Can you talk a little bit more about what is sublimation and and uh, how you're using it with your your products? So sublimation is is very unique um, compared to screen printing. You know, I personally feel that it's just it's an up and coming, well, not even up and coming anymore because now it's pretty widespread, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Basically, the difference is it, it, the technology one allows you to create HD prints, you know, colors that are very, very strong and, and detailed. You know, something that screen printing with a press doesn't oftentimes allow for. Um, the other main factor for us was it allowed us to, you know, cover an entire fabric. So that was that was the cool idea because you know the electronic dance music industry and, and the festival industry, people really like you know colorful clothing. You know, that's something that really caters to that market. So being able to actually take designs and put them over the entire surface area of the clothing was something that really captured our market. So sublimation printing, you know, it, it's very expensive and it's still relatively new. And there's there's certain you know downsides to it, but an upside is you don't have to create a mold like you would with screen printing. You know, so you can try out new designs if they don't sell. You know, your only upfront work is really creating those art files and art panels to get it printed. Um, but, you know, these files are so massive as far as the sublimation files go that, you know, a few years ago, just with computer technology, it wasn't possible to create such quali- high quality art. But now you can, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole new world and you can do that. Um, but it's become pretty widespread. You know, you see low quality sublimation type work, you know, you'll see it in Walmart and all these places that are importing it. And then you can see high resolution, you know, high quality uh, designs like what we sell where, you know, you're basically looking at it and it's almost like you're, you're staring at a painting. You know, that's really our approach, and that's what we wanted to do, and we're especially pushing with Epic Hoodie. The most unique thing about it is just the overall colors that it produces, you know, and and you can make very unique artwork, and and it can also allow you to experiment with different types of art without investing into a few hundred units. Um, For a company that's not building up inventory, it's a a good approach if you find the right manufacturer, you know, and if you get the process down pat. Um, you know, the artwork is, is very just, it's, it's something that people are just not used to seeing, you know, and, and now we're really getting to the point where we are trying to get our artwork. So, so to such high quality to where it's almost like you're looking at a painting, you know, and that's how we've really extended our branch and we're going out to artists that maybe before only printed on canvas art and things of that sort. And now we have the technology to take their artwork and put it on clothing without, you know, distorting it. That's the main thing, you know, being able to create these massive, massive files, that are so high quality that when they print on the print on the actual item, there's no, you know, there's no distortion whatsoever. You know, there's no pixelation. Um, and that's something that just was not possible a few years ago, especially, you know, even when we just got into it, it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. And are you printing or do you have your own printers? Like how do you get these, uh, these products made? Uh, we're a partner of some of the ma- uh, bigger manufacturers in the U S. Um, so we basically, we have very close relationships working with them. Um, and we, we, we send them the files and we have a whole process laid out. They, they really are an extension of, of our company. You know, they, they ship for us and, and, and we work hand in hand with them. Got it. And are these like print on demand or do you usually buy a large amount of inventory up front? How, do, how does it usually work? Uh, a, lot of t- a lot of it is print on demand. You know, when we started, the, the wait times would be 
40, 50 days in certain cases, and especially during holidays, it just got absolutely insane. Um, now we've got it down to a much, much faster time. You know, we're talking five to 10 days. Uh, but a lot of it is print on demand, you know, in situations where you, you have a design that's really selling well, you know, or a wholesale order, or you're, you're trying to, you know, bulk up for the holidays. Then in that case, you know, you would print, you would purchase, make some upfront purchases, but you know, it gets very tricky to print on demand because you have to, you have to keep in mind the, the, the way business is trending, you know, not just for yourself, but the other partners that work with the manufacturer, you know, and be prepared for delays and things that are outside of your control. And, you know, that's something that you learn the hard way, unfortunately. But again, it's a, every year you have to make little adjustments here and there, you know, and make sure that you're, you're moving in the right direction. So is it is it uh, anything beyond just uh, these uh, constraints due to uh, competitors or due to other other companies that are using these print on demand companies that might uh, take the resources from from uh, from you or are there any other reasons why you might entertain the idea of moving beyond print of print on demand and possibly printing yourselves? It's it's hard to say. You know, you always want to have control of the printing process, and if if say a manufacturer gets too popular and, and the wait times are too strong, you might go in a different direction. But I, I would say it's, it's all really based on trends. You know, if you see the trend, if you see the opportunity out there, business creates an opportunity where you no longer have to rely on print on demand. Um, and that creates a bigger market for yourself, you know, and it's, if things are stable enough to where you can purchase up front, then, you know, that's something we've definitely done in the past. Um, but right now this is really the approach for us as we, you know, try expand our artists and really grow and, and test the waters Everything in the beginning is is really a test. Got it. And you, so, you, something you mentioned to to me um, prior to interview was that uh, one of the most important things to think about as an entrepreneur is to find the right niche and then formulate a business plan around it, rather than the other way around. Can you say a little bit more about this? I, I've read read you know countless examples of, of people trying to get their businesses off the ground and just. Overall, just seeing the success rate, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to have an idea and, you know, create that idea and, and have it become something that actually comes to fruition, you know, and, and, and yields, you know, positive returns to where you're stable enough to dedicate your full time to it. My personal approach is that, you know, it's, it's a little hard headed. You, you can't be too hard headed. You know, even if you believe in a product yourself, you know, you have to see the way the market reacts to it. And you, especially, I mean, my recommendation to anyone who's starting off is even if you're super passionate about something that you're doing or you have a product. You know, you have to weigh the opportunity that's there, you know, in the market that's there for it. Don't force something if there's a lot of competitors and, you know, if it's going to be a super uphill battle. You just have to be smart. You know, you have to believe in your product and definitely be willing to take the risk. But at the same time, you know, I, I would approach it by first finding a niche and then exploring that niche and, and creating your business rather than having a business model idea first and then just forcing that in. You know, you want to find an opportunity and be smart about it. Mm. And in when you you mentioned earlier that uh, EDM was not the only niche that you were considering early on, what made you choose the EDM niche over the other options? Uh, you know, it, it just it, that's the way the conversations went. You know, the, the very first time that I wanted to explore these, I had a few ideas, and, and I got I got a group of my friends together. All of them had jobs, you know, and then myself and one my partner at that point were the ones that ended up following through with it, but. You know, I basically put out a few ideas out there of different industries that I saw really getting big over the next few years. Um, you know, and this is really the route we took just based on just the discussions we had and what was realistic. Um, you know, and I would say that in this specific idea that I had here for this business, it wouldn't require me to leave New York, you know, something that the other potential idea would have required me to do. 
Got it. Nowadays, are you using paid advertising to to drive traffic to the to the business? Yeah, we, we are using paid advertising. Uh, we use you know Google advertising. We use social media advertising. Um, you know, and without divulging too much, I would say that it, it's it's a very change. It, just like the business, it's an environment that's changing very quickly. Um, especially Facebook, especially social media, as those platforms get really maxed out as far as their advertising space, you know, and, and as they go public, you know, and then the year for profit from their end becomes stronger and stronger, it becomes more difficult to keep those spreads, you know, and to, and to keep doing what you're doing, especially on our part, you know, one of our main things is quality of product. Um, and while, you know, there are avenues to get our, you know, get our same product printed overseas, you know, we wanted to stay true to, you know, our business model and deliver a made in the USA product and facilitate business within the United States for other companies as well, you know, helping the, the economy. But at the same time, you know, we want to deliver a very high quality product to our customers. Um, but again, it becomes a situation where, you know, things change, you know, companies go into the industry, they have higher spreads because maybe they're importing things. And, you know, there's definitely, you know, decisions that have to be made. And as advertising gets more and more expensive, you know, you really have to make calls on certain things and in certain cases focus more on organic, you know, advertising, you know, rather than paid advertising and, and figuring out ways to make the spreads work and, and to keep your profit margin there. Mm, what do you mean by uh, organic advertising? How does that work? I would just, you know, working on your social media and, and the unpaid aspects of it, you know, and, and jumping on new platforms, maybe jumping on Snapchat, jumping on other platforms that, uh, provide that opportunity for you without investing too much, you know, into actually the paid reach, you know, and that, that's, that's really what I mean by that. Um, you know, at the same time too, like for example, with, with our business, you know, we have, um, we have IEDM radio, which is a pretty popular podcast in the EDM industry, you know, something that we do want to give back to fans and, and, and to really have just a, a separate connection from the apparel side of things, you know, a separate way that people can know of us. And, you know, we can establish that rapport with, um, electronic dance music, DJs and producers. So the podcast has been something that we've had for a few years now. You know, we have our own aspirations for that sector of the company. Um, also on Blast, which is our blog where, you know, we've been getting a lot of big interviews with a lot of the industry leaders. And that's another way to really, you know, get organic placement both online through, a, you know, search engine optimization, but also just continue that word of mouth, you know, and, and, and have our brand, you know, freshly into the minds of, you know, people in the industry and, and the fan, their fans who may read those articles. So it's about really exploring, you know, and, and weighing paid advertising against really other ways you can reach a wider audience. Mm, so rather than spending your your time and resources on paid advertising, you are creating content that will attract the, the, the kind of customers that you want to check out your store, whether that be through the kind of content you post on social media or the, the podcast that you mentioned or the, the, the blog, as putting content out on the blog as well. Uh, now, to run this entire show, what kind of apps or tools do you use to help run the business? I, I heard you mention the bestseller app and Yapo earlier. Are there any other apps either on Shopify or off of Shopify that you use? Uh, yeah. So mail apps right now we're using MailChimp. You know, we've, um, potentially looking at other, other apps as well, as far as the emails go cart recovery. You know, we, we've tried our, our hand with a few different apps on Shopify right now. We're using, I believe it's called beautiful abandoned cart emails. We're also using a separate abandoned cart from, from MailChimp. Um, just to name a few other apps, Yachtpo for reviews is the reviews app we're currently using. You know, a bit on the expensive side, but it does it does have some of its positives. Um, ShipStation, you know, to just 
control the whole shipping line and make sure things things go on time. Um, an app that we recently started using is Lucky Orange, which is a pretty cool app. You know, it has it allows you to really experience, you know, see the user experience and see what they're seeing on their end. You know, oftentimes there's glitches and there's things that you may never notice because, you know, your the program and, and, and the coding itself is so sensitive to the browsers and the computers people are using. Now, a quick question about Lucky Orange. Uh, this this tool and uh, I think Hotjar are the two most popular ones in this realm. Of course, you're probably getting tons of traffic and even store owners that don't have as much traffic as you, they are maybe overwhelmed by all the recordings, all the data that's coming through there. Like, how do you make use or how do you make actionable use out of that that data that comes from a tool like Lucky Orange? Uh, yeah, and, and, and Love Rap, I, I have you know tried it out as well in the past. Lucky Orange is just the one we're really sticking to at the moment. But you know, the, the most favorable tool I would say there is one, just you know, if there's any odd patterns that you're noticing with your conversion rates, you definitely want to jump on there and, and try to understand the user experience and see if there's something that you're not seeing on your end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is heat maps, you know, and, and understanding, you know, if something is dissuading clicks or persuading clicks and, you know, trying to understand that data and then work off that data to make future decisions. Um, but to be honest, you know, it's a great, great tool. We, we And we're doing our best to use it more and more. I feel like we're not getting the most use out of it right now. Got it. So you 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 look for for signs that something might be wrong or something might be worth investigating just by looking at your high level metrics and then using a tool like Lucky Orange to to dig into the kind of surveillance footage, I guess, of what might be going on that's causing these these uh, changes in the metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I I'd love to say that you know we're in a position where you know we're 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 using it to improve the store day in and day out. Um, but realistically on our current resources and trying to, you know, grow the product lines in this seasonal situation here where, you know, we have a lot of things going on up at cutting IEDM. We're mainly using that tool in case there's anything, you know, any negative trends that we see, or if there's any new website features out and just make sure that everything is all good across platform. Got it. Thank you so much for your time, Anthony. So IEDM.com is the website. You also mentioned Epic Hoodies at EpicHoodie.com. Yep, EpicHoodie.com. Got it. So that's a new store that, that that's just been launched. Uh, where do you want to see the, these, uh, this is this empire that you're building uh, go to next this, this time next year? You know, hopefully internationally. You know, hopefully expand into the international market. Um, but at the same time, I really hope by this time next year, you know, we really separate ourselves from our competitors by just providing a unique experience and a unique product. That's where I'm in focus right now, is just you know, changing some things around it as far as what we're doing and just really creating something con- that's unique. You know, and just seeing you know, how fast the industry changes. You know, any, my recommendation for anyone out there starting their own business is really just never settle. You know, and constantly look to improve, constantly look to change because things do catch up. You know, every, it's, it's, it's the internet, you know, everybody sees everything, you know, whether it's a company overseas selling your images or whether it's, you know, competitors seeing what sells and rightfully so it's their, you know, their right to do so, but you have to keep changing. You have to keep delivering a fresh product if you want to really reach that next echelon. So hopefully by this time next year, that's where we are. Thank you so much again, Anthony. All right, folks. Thank you so much. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. They get the first tote out of that fabric for free as sort of a like a, a thank you for helping us connect others with that country. And then they get $10 per tote sold as well. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. 
To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.